Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Be sure to laugh today. I think improv is an essential mindset for innovation and design. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with John Sweeney. John, along with his wife, Jenny Lilladal, are the co-owners of the Brave New Workshop. The Brave New Workshop is the nation's longest-running satirical and improv comedy theater. John and the Brave New Workshop have developed corporate training and education programs that help leverage an improv mindset to develop an innovative mindset. I'm a big fan of improv as a way to cultivate better social-emotional intelligence in organizations. John and I explore his journey to innovation, how he helps organizations utilize improv, and how he prepares for his keynote speeches. From a design and craft perspective, I really appreciated how the Brave New Workshop developed new lines of business by listening to their customers and how John continues to work on his craft, taking a humbly serve attitude to approaching his business and performance. By not taking himself too seriously, he's able to extend the work and vision of Dudley Riggs. That spirit of service and support from Dudley's philosophy of providing a safe haven for the freaks. I'd like to thank John for joining me for this discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode. I challenge you to try to spend as many moments as you can in a mindset of discovery instead of a mindset of fear. John Sweeney is the CEO of the nation's oldest satirical comedy theater called Brave New Workshop. He's a corporate trainer, an improviser, and an author. He's got the ability to deliver learning and expertise in a truly unforgettable way. How many moments were we able to stay in that mindset of discovery where new ideas were absorbed, where different points of view were embraced, where we stretched ourselves, where we did the things that really allow us to start our journey to discovery? John, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, could you uh, just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, uh, this is John Sweeney and my wife and I, whose name is Jenny Lilladal, uh, we own the Brave New Workshop Comedy Theater in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which has the, uh, the uh, title of the nation's longest running comedy theater. So it's a Physically, it's a small little space, 200 seats in downtown Minneapolis, and it was founded by a man by the name of Dudley Riggs, who uh, is truly one of the pioneers of the art form of improvisation. And he started that in 1958, and uh, we've been proud to keep it running here, and and we uh, do shows every single weekend uh, without missing anything since May 10th of 1958. So we're we're a scrappy little theater. We uh, survived the Vietnam War and JFK assassination and 9-11, and as you may guess, we're now dealing with this. My background's a little bit odd uh, compared to most people who were in the, uh, quote, arts. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm uh, south of Madison, Wisconsin, and the youngest of eight kids, Irish Catholic family, good, hard-working family. We, we milked about 160 head of Holstein cows twice a day for 23 years, and uh, then went to uh, St. Norbert College uh, outside of Green Bay, which um, if you're not familiar with uh, St. Norbert, I explain it as it's a great seventh choice. Um, so that means if, if you didn't get accepted to Notre Dame or Boston College or Marquette or Gonzaga or any of the other 
Catholic schools that your parents would pay for, uh, this was a great seventh choice. And so I was honored to go there and then uh, came up to the Twin Cities to Minneapolis, St. Paul uh, in 1988 and uh, pursued a real estate career. Um, a lot of my family is in real estate. So I did commercial real estate um, for about seven years. Um, and mostly help people uh, who ran large organizations to find office space in downtown markets. So I was kind of a, uh, a paid negotiator to get them the best deal. And then uh, I was uh, grateful and, and lucky enough to grow up and spend a lot of time with Chris Farley. So Chris and I, uh, our dads went to high school together and, and his brother Kevin and I were in the same grade and Chris is a, a year ahead of us uh, in school. And uh, so we knew each other from kindergarten all the way through college. And about that time, he had just made it on Saturday Night Live. And uh, so I started getting interested in improvisation. Um, and so in 1989, I started taking improv classes uh, from a man who was an alumni of the Brave New Workshop, Stevie Ray. And he had a small, I had never heard of the Brave New Workshop. He had a small little theater and still going strong. Uh, and I remember my absolute first class. And it was one of those, I'm sure we've all had those moments, but um, it really was a, a shocking and wonderful moment for me. I still remember everything about that first class. And, and what seemed to happen to me was, is that I stumbled upon this beautiful art form, which um, by its nature and by its rules, allowed me to be myself. And um, I'm not sure if many other things had done that before. Uh, I'd always seemed a little bit out of place in most things that I, I did. My irreverent sense of humor didn't fit in everywhere. My um, love of chaos and change didn't fit anywhere. My need for complete ambiguity and, and uh, my disdain for anything consistent or regulated, uh, my, my lack of respect for most authority figures, all that seemed to solve pro <laughs> cause problems for me, but in the world of improvisation seemed to be an asset. And, uh, and as humble as I may uh, try to be, uh, I was pretty damn good at it right from the beginning. <laughs> so, and mostly I just fell in love with it. So that became a passion for me. And so I had a two year period where I was negotiating large commercial real estate leases and learning how to improvise at the same time. And then thank goodness um, in on October 15th of 1993, uh, I was hired at the Brave New Workshop Comedy Theater. And uh, I didn't know much about that. And and that changed everything. I left the 40th floor of the IDS tower and a pretty good salary and a company car. And I became a full-time improviser uh, and did that for two years and then was able to work at the second city in Chicago from 95 until 97. And then actually in the winter of 96, I got a wonderful call from Dudley Riggs and he said, you're the only one who's done anything in business before. And uh, at that point I'd also gotten sober. So I got sober in 1995. So he says, and you don't, you don't drink anymore. So you're, you're really the only candidate I have to, to offer this theater to. Would you like to take it over? And of course, I was really honored. At, at that time, we were just working on a sitcom uh, with the Farley brothers in, in Chicago. Um, and Chris was kind of in the last part of his life. Um, and my sobriety also allowed me to, to reconnect with this wonderful woman that I had been dating before uh, Jenny Lilladal. And uh, we realized that we could make a life of it. And so on March 3rd of 1997, we became the owners of the Brave New Workshop. And I kind of, in some ways, uh, left my, my pursuit of trying to make it in Hollywood, uh, which was really one of the best decisions I ever made. I think the three things I'm most grateful for is 
that I got sober, then I married Jenny, and then I decided not to try to be another fat, funny guy in Hollywood. Um, and so that was, I guess, 23 years ago, and we've been running the place ever since, and we've had our ups and downs, and as you can imagine, we're in a, a new challenge uh, in, in this phase of the Brave New Workshop. So that's my story, and that's... most of that was true. <laughs> that, that's great. Uh, yeah, and one, one of the things I was thinking is uh, when, when Dudley reached out to you and you and Jenny are getting ready to take over the theater, obviously Brave New Workshop already had a really strong brand, strong reputation, and, uh, and actually kind of one of the things I do want to dig in a little bit is the notion of promiscuous hostility and positive neutrality. Uh, when you were getting ready to, was, was, was there an agreement on like how to protect the brand? Or I feel like maybe this was Dudley's baby. Did he just say, take care of it now? Or were there any like, uh, promises that you had to make on how you would treat the Brave New Workshop? Yeah, there was certainly nothing in writing, but I think, um, I'm proud to say that I think that's why Dudley asked me to, to be the caretaker with Jenny of the next generation. Um, because I think he knew how much I treasured and, and revered what he had built and, and the traditions and the mission. Um, you know, in 1958, when he started, uh, he always says he probably picked the worst town in the world to start an irreverent <laughs> social and political satire uh, theater company and, and this promiscuous hostility, positive neutrality was, I think, a way of him boldly saying to the very conservative, very Scandinavian uh, Minnesotans um, that he was going to talk about things that weren't always talked about on Sunday afternoons and that he was going to use satire as um, a pretty sharp uh, prodding element to start discussion on, on topics that are really important to this country and, and to that community. So I, I love the phraseology of promiscuous hostility, positive neutrality. Um, and I love that it puts a stake in the ground. Um, you know, we've even had some incidents in the last 48 hours in the Twin Cities which um, right. need to be commented on and, and, and we will comment on those. So, yeah, I, and I have to say that, um, you know, I, I don't think that I've, I've run the theater in a perfect way, but I am proud of the fact that at every uh, moment of, of chance that we had, we chose to honor Dudley and to respect and to try to uh, recreate and build upon what, what he had created, which is different than, hey, you know, this guy ran a theater for 39 years and now we know what's going on and we're going to try to figure it out. Certainly we've added energy, we've added some capital, we've added lots of employees and we've added some product lines. But at the end of the day, we, we try to just continue uh, this version of, of what Dudley had started. And, and that's, that's truly an honor. And I, I still get to talk to Dudley once in a while and, and uh, he's proud of what we've done. And, and that's probably our guiding forces. Are we making Dudley proud? That's great. Thank you. And I, uh, I'm a big fan of improv. When I lived in Minneapolis, I actually took classes as well uh, from the Brave New Workshop and uh, a big believer in the connection between an improv mindset and an innovative mindset. And so I want to dig in there. And for folks that might not know, uh, you've co-authored two books on innovation, right? And, and really bringing innovation principles to bear before I dig in, just as a little background too for you, uh, in multiple uh, companies, I've been responsible for building design teams. And one of my values and, and also my value for my, my business, improv is one of my values because uh, in a complex world, right, it's not scripted and you don't know what's going to happen. But when you do bring an improv mindset, it can really help you embrace chaos. And so 
for me, I like that. But if you don't mind, can you talk about the, the connections between kind of like when you've been writing the books and also doing corporate training and helping people utilize more of that, that improv or innovative mindset? Sure. And I think it's, um, the story helps a little bit too. So, you know, 97, we buy the theater and then uh, with good Irish luck in 1998, this tiny little thing called the internet uh, happens. And then along with that came DVD players and DVD-R recorders and TiVo and cell phones and all the things that would give someone a reason not to go to live theater. And so in some ways, our recession as theater owners was really in, in 98 through 2000. Um, and, you know, the Twin Cities has uh, the second most theater seats per capita of anywhere in the country. And we lost a third of the theaters in those two years. They literally went out of business because now, you know, our guests had the ability to stay at home and, and binge watch Netflix uh, without worrying about parking or, or any of the things uh, that has to do with the effort of coming to live theater. So to be honest, the reason why we have a, a, a corporate training company, which is, you know, now if you looked at our business, it's, it's 75% of our gross revenues, you know, in the last 10 years has been from corporate training it came out of necessity and it came out of desperation uh, because we, we went from, um, you know, having it be a traditional thing on Friday night, you go to dinner and you go to the theater to a lot of challenges. And so what we did is we asked um, the people who came to our theater and more importantly, the people who were enrolled in our school, um, why are you taking these classes? And, and we were a bit surprised by that because uh, our classes traditionally had mostly been for actors who wanted to increase their stage skills and their ability to uh, develop, uh, spontaneous characters and to be more comfortable in front of the camera or whatever it was. It was mostly a, a artist school. And lo and behold, after Jenny had built it up after a couple of years of owning it, 80% uh, of our, our students worked at Medtronic and Best Buy and Capella and all the other yeah. places that are around town. And, and when we asked them, why are they taking these classes? Uh, it was wonderfully practical. They said that they they knew that they needed to be more innovative and more flexible and, and more diverse in their thought and, and more comfortable with change. And this art form, and more specifically these classes, actually gave them a place to practice that, to, to have a, a workout session, a gym of sorts, to work on that innovative mindset, um, which I just thought was wonderful. Because um, if you look at the world of arts and the world of athletics, the one thing that they have in common is that they practice all the time. You know, I right. played college football, and so we'd, you know, we'd show up in early August, and our first game wasn't until September, and we'd practice all week long for a three-hour game in, in the weekend. Um, and even in improv, we're constantly practicing our skill, not in front of our audience. Um, and so I've always, often wondered why in the business world do we, we don't practice our skills. We just say, you know, here's a PowerPoint, here's an e-learning, here's a book on it. And, and now go. Uh, I right. always use this, the silly analogy of, you know, if, um, if we're working with General Mills and, and, and instead of increasing the innovative mindset of their employees, they wanted everyone to be better at playing the cello. Uh, and they bought everyone a cello. And, and they, they had a video of Yo-Yo Ma talking about how to be a great cello player. And then they told everyone to go back to work. Uh, at the end of the year, they would all suck at celloing, right? <laughs> and their ROI on celloing would be pretty low. But that's kind of what they ask us to do when it comes to the soft skills of the business world. They ask us to be more creative and more innovative and better leaders and better customer focused and all those things. But then they keep us very, very busy and don't give us a lot of time to practice. So 
very kind of by chance we stumbled upon that the core tenets of improvisation uh, are very similar to one with, with the ones that one would want to have to be innovative in the corporate workplace. And those are simple things. Um, this ability to deal with an ever-changing environment in a culture that is anything but consistent. This ability to respect the diversity of someone else's point of view and to realize that the mathematics of innovation needs as many disparate points of view as possible. Um, this ability to humbly know that we don't know everything about what the best thing for the future is and to, um, to have this aggressive curiosity. Um, the ability to be clear in your own point of view and declare it. And then also the practicality of things, right? Like when you improvise for years and years and years, you realize that your behavior and your culture is much more important than the actual content. Um, right. You know, when I'm on stage and someone gives a suggestion for what the next scene should be, it, it truly doesn't matter to me. If it's going to be about Richard Nixon or the Olympics or dairy farming or Arbor Day, I could care less <laughs> because I'm still going to behave the same way. I'm going to embrace the next moment as a gift. I'm going to create a culture that's safe with my teammates. And I'm going to know that this ensemble-based creation will create something much more innovative and interesting than I could create on my own. So I humbly serve the scene. And I humbly ask, what can I do to make everyone else in the scene look better than me? And that seems to be uh, a nice analogy and at least a metaphor that we use in our work. And we just hit 3,000 uh, 3, engagements. So 3,000 times we've worked with corporations across the globe to help their employees uh, embrace an innovative mindset. So I, I love your cello analogy. Uh, so how, how do you, uh, and as you're working with the companies, I guess one is what do you see their, their biggest like friction point in, in like, yeah, this sounds good in the abstract, but how might we really adopt this? Or uh, I guess, how do you approach really getting them to kind of understand the power of that, that kind of, improv mindset? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's probably our biggest obstacle as, as far as selling what we do, right? Because, you know, to sell something, there has to be this perceived value. And it really boils down to um, that, that an innovative mindset or, or other soft skills, you know, being a great leader or, or being a great coach or that sort of thing. Um, it's hard to put a hard ROI. It's, it's hard to say the mindset of our organization increased by X uh, number and therefore we made more money and, and this will sound a bit cynical and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be as factual as I can but yeah. many things don't get approved for budgets unless you can prove right. that they have a multiple ROI and so what happened and, and, and what still happens I see it every single day is the company says we need to be more innovative whether it's new product development or how we approach new obstacles or certainly in this new world we need to reinvent ourselves and they look to a new tool or a new specific set of skills before they look at the mindset. And so our work really is based mm -hmm, on this mm -hmm. silly little triangle, right? The top third of the triangle is the tool set. The middle uh, third is the, the skill set. And then that mindset is what everything rests on. And so they'll be able to say, if we embrace this new CRM software, it'll increase efficiency. And so that gives us an 8% lift. Let's buy one of those. Or they say, if everyone is certified Six Sigma or certified Stanford Design School, we'll be able to do better. There's proof of that. But it's tough to say if everyone has a better mindset. We are seeing some things now with research coming out to at least um, assume that those skill sets and those tool sets will be more productive 
if they're being used by a person who has an open mindset, an innovative mindset, an improvisational yep. mindset. So that's kind of how we go to that. And to be honest, we, we're getting to the point, thank goodness, uh, where if the leadership doesn't believe that the mindset is truly uh, a fundamental part of innovation, um, we're now able to just say, I, I think we're probably not a good fit for you and, and we should work with someone else. Right. Thank you for that. Uh, a couple things to that I, I find really interesting is I've been doing some work with the uh, uh, Purdue Agile Strategy Lab. So out of Purdue University, they, they're producing something called strategic doing. And it's basically a reaction to why strategic plans fail when they're so scripted, they're so detailed, uh, and, and basically complex adaptive problems don't yield to previous best practices. So you need to actually experiment and do new things. Uh, again, a lot of things that, that uh, support like the innovative and, and improv mindset. One of the things I found uh, fascinating is they start from a place of psychological safety. It's, for them, it starts with the conversation. And, right, and I, I feel like from a team and ensemble, that's critical for, for good improv too, right? It's, it's got to be a safe place to experiment and help folks. Uh, but I thought you might find that interesting too, is that like you know, universities are starting to point to basically maybe what improv folks knew all along is that uh, if it's not a safe place to be creative, you're going to, you're not going to get creative ideas. And I see that a lot in corporations. It's like, well, what's the safest like thing I could nudge out with? Like, you know, maybe we'll change the color of the packaging rather than change the whole idea of why somebody wants your product. And sometimes I see organizations just playing it too safe and still wanting innovative results. Yeah. Uh, we, sorry, we, not a question there really, but if you don't yeah, mind no, commenting no, or critiquing that. It's very, it's very common. We've been seeing it for 20 years. And, and so you know, they'll ask the question, why aren't people taking more risks? Why aren't they trying to, you know, completely go in a new direction or at least have a conversation about a new direction or a new product or, or that sort of thing? And then we always ask the question, if they're not taking risks, is it because they don't feel safe taking those risks? Right. And, and for a long time, maybe the first 10 years, um, my perception was too narrow. I would see that uh, culture of safety and I would say, well, it really depends on the leader. And it certainly is influenced by the leader, right? But I also found that, that sometimes that is a scapegoat for, for the rest of us. We'll say, I don't feel safe because my boss is a jerk. I don't feel safe because when I come up with an idea, she critiques it all the time. And I get that. And so we work a lot with leaders to say, create a safe place for people to be flawed and to, and to have that dress rehearsal mentality of not coming up with the perfect idea right away. But we also push people to empower themselves to not worry about whether or not they feel safe because of their boss's behavior. We call it a culture of one. And, and so you, you can't control, and, and there's never a perfect place where everything you say, people are gonna think is wonderful, and they're never gonna judge on whether or not it's practical or implementable or meets brand or legal will develop it or it will make right. money for you, right? So we also work on the self-resilience of, um, you make it safe for yourself. And, uh, and you know, that's kind of how it works on stage. Uh, I can't control the behavior of my scene partners, but I can control my own personal safety and I can control the behavior that I demonstrate to start that chain reaction of safety. And so when everyone buys into that, that's when it's great. The other thing I would say is when, when we're working and doing our training sessions, it's almost as uh, black and white as the fight or flight um, you know, mentality that, that we have in our instinctual beings, right? Yeah. And if we, if we create an environment that doesn't have enough safety 
I'll watch our students or our executives or whoever we're working with just shut down. And it really is almost like a trigger. So I would say the first 15% of any activity we do, if we're going to do an all-day session with, with a group of people, the first 15% is truly just to let them believe in their hearts and in their minds and their bodies that this is a safe place. And we get really deliberate about that. Like we have rules of engagement. You know, we, we let people know yep. that if they want to do really well today, they should probably take that judgment and just wait till five o'clock because we don't need it. Um, right. So yes, safety. I, it's good to see that there's some science behind that because we've, we've noticed it, right? If they're right. not safe, they're not going to be able to be innovative. Yeah, Ed Morrison, who's one of the leaders of that, I actually had a conversation with him recently, and and what he had shaped for me is that we, you know, we have these large organizations, whether they're, they're business, government, or, you know, even economic development coalitions, and then a smaller unit of that is the team, and then the smallest unit within the team that you can influence is the conversation itself. So, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you create a safe, spa- safe space and also come at it with uh, kind of... Uh, honest humility and positive intent, right? It's, it's, it really is. How can you be your, a good authentic partner? And also how do you create that safe space for others? And um, just by, by having that good guiding conversation. So I'd like that too. Like you said, let's, let's set the parameters out early of what we're really looking for. And, uh, and then it kind of in, embrace that. Uh, Cause I know it's hard to get people to stretch. At t- I mean, I, you, you talk about it as a mindset. Sometimes I talk about like muscles and it's like, if I haven't used that, <laughs> It, it feels a little awkward. So sometimes even getting people to be a little more creative can be tough. Well, and then we're also battling our neurology, right? Like, you yeah. know, the, the brain's basic purpose is to keep us safe. And <laughs> so anytime we want to do something different or new, um, it's going to judge that pretty quickly. Um, in, in my keynote speech, I always kind of kid about the fact that, um, you know, about 20 minutes into my keynote, we start doing exercises. So I'll say something like, uh, in about five minutes, I'm going to ask all of you to stand up around your tables. And um, for the next hour or so, we're going to do um, mildly intimidating, emotionally revealing, um, generally awkward improvisational comedy exercises for about an hour. And then I'd just be quiet. And you can literally hear the anxiousness in the room, right? And, and there'll be some nervous laughing. Sometimes, it's, you know, if it's a room of, of a thousand people, you'll hear someone say, you know, like hell we are, or, or I'm, I'm out of here, that sort of stuff. And so there's a general anxiousness. And then I follow up with saying, okay, how'd you feel about that? In general, it looks like the rooms, your brains gave it a thumb down, I, thumbs down. I, I don't think I want to do that. But you are going to get into a 1500 pound vehicle and drive 65 miles an hour with four vehicles around you, hoping that you'll all simultaneously consistently take the same speed. Now, two of those people are on their phone one of them is mildly intoxicated and the old lady behind you can't see over the dashboard. Right. But that's safe. Let's do that twice a day. Let's, let's geographically build community communities that demand commuting. Right. And so the reason that's safe is because the brain is very binary. It says, have I done it before successfully or not? And so it just told you that it's safer to drive a car than to do an improv exercise. Right. So then I say, you know, you like numbers out there. People are data driven. So here's the number, 118. 118 people die in the United States of America every single day from car accidents. 118. And so now let's look at the number for improv. Zero. We've never, literally <laughs> never lost anyone in an improv exercise. So we're, um, we're pretty bold in asking people to deny their neurology a bit and know that when they think it's not safe, 
maybe they need to really look at the situation and, and consider something beyond their own neurology saying that it was unsafe. Thank you. I know another, another thing in improv that's critically important is listening, active listening, being present, uh, which I think for some business leaders can also be challenging, right? Because it's that actually really listening. Do you, have, do you have tips for folks just in general how to become better listeners and being present? Yeah, one of the tips is a, is a bit bold, and, and it, uh, it's when we work with leaders a, a lot. We, we ask people to, to honestly assess whether or not this is a, 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 communi- a, a conversation that is, is equal and has two voices in it, or if they just want to tell people what to do. And, and, and to be bold about that, because yeah. they're the boss, right? And, and so maybe it is. And, and, but don't, can, don't confuse the two, right? Because that's where the listening stops. The listening stops when people think they're or say they're in a conversation, but they're not. They're just in a presentation. And so when you're in a conversation, it's at least 50-50. Where, where the improvisation helps us is um, the desperation in which we listen. Because the only way I can gain information about what we ought to do next is to listen to my scene partner. Because that's the only source of information. So I'm not only excited about what you have to say, and I'm not only curious about what you said, it, it's, it's my lifeblood, right? I, it's my oxygen. If I don't listen to you, <clears throat> excuse me, then I, then I can't move forward. Right. And then there's some ramifications on stage because it's also important for me to actively listen to you because if you change the circumstances of the scene and I wasn't listening, you know, we could be on the Mississippi River paddling a canoe and then you decide that this canoe also can take us to Mars. And I didn't hear that. Now the audience is going to go, right. wow, he, he's not a very good improviser, uh, which really means he's not a very good listener. So uh, we also look at it as, a, as a, a physical skill. You know, you see a lot of uh, active listening, uh, empathetic listening, yeah. all these kind of corporate terms. And then if it was an artist or a, 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 an athlete, you would then go work that muscle. Right. And so, so how do you physically listen? And I do silly things, you know, I'll, um, I'll, I'll watch a foreign film without subtitles in a language that I can't speak to see if I can listen and watch the body language to figure out what's happening in that movie. I, I, I do a yeah. workout session, right? Right, um, right. I have, I have a 14 year old who the only way you know that he's sleeping is because he's not talking. Like, that's how much he talks. He talks more than I do. And he generally talks about one subject, and that's basketball. And, and so I will force myself to listen, you know, to why Magic Johnson was the best uh, point guard in the history of the NBA. Even though he's told me that 30 times, I will listen and listen and listen. So that's the other thing. I challenge myself to listen to things that I know I've already heard and that it's important for that person to be listened to, right? He doesn't really care if I understand anything about Magic Johnson, but he does want his dad to listen to him. And so yeah. there are practical ways to get to get better at that, and I don't see the physicality of it being used as much. Thank you. One of the things I really appreciate about you, too, and we, we've talked in the past about this, but you brought up uh, football and theater. And mm-hmm. for a lot of people, those are like completely separate worlds, but some of us have, have done both, right? And I, I'm... I'm you know, in that game too, I did high school football and high school sports and, you know, theater. Uh, but I, it is the, the shocking thing for me about like, uh, 
people not putting in the reps, right, to, to develop those, those skills and just how much of like really important business meetings or business decisions really comes down to somebody usually grabbing somebody else's slides and okay, we'll just, we'll just run through this. Right. And, and even in an important, uh, actually, I'm not sure what that means there, but let's just keep going rather than like really just owning it and knowing it. But I was talking to a theater friend of mine recently. She's in Athens. She used to be an artistic director at a theater company in Minneapolis. And uh, she teaches now at the university of Georgia. But uh, we, we were just talking about how much discipline goes into I don't even know what the ratios would be, but you, you talk about football practice, right? For an hour of game time, right? Once a week, but you're, you're practicing every day, you're watching film and the amount of time that theater companies rehearse and do things behind the scene for, you know, relatively small amount of time in front of an audience. And how, how can we get, it goes back to the cellos. How can we get them to practice cellos when they, they leave one, you know, one meeting to the next or one email? How do we get them to use that improv cello? There's some, there's some math that you can do. And so sometimes I've, I've actually brought in, you know, a, a behavioral scientist or organizational development person to try to say, um, because the reason we don't do it is because we don't want to take anyone off the job, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever that means, right? Like, right. especially, you know, you think of a lawyer or an accountant. We don't want to spend billable hours on skill development because we think we're losing money. But if you can get someone to do the math of, if a person is performing at 150% of what they're typically doing now when it comes to new ideas or communicating with others or being a better leader or being a, you know, a better team member, um, that ratio can justify that they should practice that amount. Because when I've done the math, I think athletes and artists, it's got to be 80% of our lives is practice and 20% is execution. Right. Uh, and it's completely opposite, you know, in the business world. It, it's right. rare that we, you know, you don't, walk some, you don't walk by someone's office or talk to them on a conference call and say, you know, what's your schedule like today? Well, you know, I'm going to work out for three hours on my listening skills. And then this afternoon I have a uh, innovation coach and we're going to, I'm going to work on my brainstorming skills. And then I'm doing an open mind seminar uh, at, from three to five, right? Like it's, right. it's I got a meeting, I got to sell, I got to execute. Uh, my inbox yeah. is full. It's, it's execute. So, um, so what we try to do is to, is to pr- prove that the optimization of that human skills will actually have a better ROI than, you know, it's back to, you know, measure twice, cut once, right? Like right, right. do it the right way first, but that's a tough one. And, and I even find it myself, you know, I, I don't have time to work on the skills of being a good keynote speaker because I'm too busy giving keynotes. You know, (laughs) so how how do I expect? And and I love the absurdity. You know, you you think of whatever it is. It doesn't have to be football, right? Let's say it's a ballerina and she's working on the height of her jumps, right? Well, she's not going to just go do ballet. She's going to work on her calf muscles and her balance and the acceleration she needs to get off the ground. Those are all micro skills that she's going to practice over and over and over again. You know, I think one of the books up there had had the... uh, the 10,000 hours, right? You need 10,000 yeah. hours. Yeah. Well, you know, tell me one salesperson who spent 10,000 hours just on the eloquence of, of communicating their value proposition, right? right. Well, that's what you would, that's what you do. If you were a tennis player, you'd spend 10,000 hours just on your forehand. Yeah. And so uh, it's one of the things I try to advocate a lot and it really is time. I have to say um, it's one of the first things I've noticed in the last 10 weeks with this new world 
is because we're not spending so much time in meeting after meeting or in, in traveling or whatever, they're commuting, they're, there's been yeah. time given back to people. And I've been really excited that I've seen them start to say, wow, I finally have the time to practice that one thing I wanted to get better right. at, to, to actually take that online course, to, to, to spend some time self-aware uh, uh, you know, and work on, on this and that and that. And, and to me, what it looks like is the world has given us a chance to actually have some practice time. It's right. been wonderful. Thank you. Uh, one, one of the things I want to ask you about, because I know you, you do a bunch of keynote speech, like thousands of, uh, of keynote speeches, and you, and you had just mentioned that as well as kind of like giving those. Uh, do you mind walking me through like just uh, from an improv set and kind of an improv mindset, how you get ready to deliver a keynote? Sure. The first thing that I do, um, which has probably been the most helpful thing, is I've, I've at least works for me. I've switched um, the perception of what I'm doing. Um, I think sometimes you think I'm, I'm here presenting. Um, and so it's my job to, to be a presenter. Um, and that's sometimes what it feels like on stage as an actor too. And what I did is I switched that and I said, my job is to serve. And so if I'm going to serve the audience and the client, then that kind of reverses, reverse engineers what I need to do to get ready for that. So the first thing I need to do is to get to know them. And so I spend back to the reps, right? I spend, I hope more time than most folks really, really getting to know the client. And so it's not just one conference call and a questionnaire. It's let me talk to three different types of people who will be in the audience that day and spend a couple hours on the phone with them. Uh, let me ask 15 people to fill out uh, a questionnaire that talks about the obstacles they're currently facing. Um, let me use this promiscuous hostility, positive neutrality to get people to tell me things that they're not going to tell their boss, right? What's, what's the happy hour chat. Okay. Uh, and, and so I, I really do that. And then I, I try to, um, I try to create a future state of behavior. I ask those people, if I'm successful today, what would you like the audience to do differently? How, how would you like them to behave differently? And that kind of gives me my job to do is to help, um, in, in our case, use transformative yeah. laughter and this mindset of, of improvisation to serve that human being to start their journey to be a little bit different, a, a little bit better. Um, my wife coined this phrase as, as an improv teacher, and she says, our job is to, is to kindly take the hand of each student and slowly walk them on their path towards their best self. And so when I was able to, about 10 years ago, switch that mindset of, I'm not here to give a speech, I'm here to serve, then I instantly knew what I had to do. And it was mostly research and empathy and getting to know them. Um, and that's kind of, you know, back to even that day, right? I, yeah. uh, I try to picture one person who maybe uh, hasn't taken enough risks and, and hasn't fulfilled their career because they've been frightened. Can I help them be more courageous? Can I help them believe in themselves? I try to break it down to simple things. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to have have great parents and, and to, to grow up in a world of service, which is dairy farming, right? Like we started our days with, it's a great day to feed the world. Um, and this kind of, uh, I take pride in being able to serve someone and to help them. Um, and so that's how I approach the keynotes. And then, you know, I, I, did, I have learned some stuff from stage presence, right? Like you, right. you got to fake it sometimes. You're, you're in a low energy mood and, and, and the audience doesn't care. It's ladies and gentlemen, here's the Brave New Workshop or here's John yeah. Sweeney. So I, I drink a lot of coffee uh, right before the speech. <laughs> um, 
and, and then the other thing too is, uh, you know, I just, I really am grateful to think that that's what I can do for a living compared to milk and dairy cows. Yeah. It, it's a wonderful life. And, uh, and then I also try not to take myself too serious. So you know, those that's, are helpful, but that's what I do. That's great. I love uh, a lot of my business is also human centered design and it's, it's trying to understand it's empathy. It's trying to understand what are people really trying to accomplish and what's getting in the way of their goals. So I love that you're, you're always doing research and that context also to, to serve. To me, that sounds really powerful and I appreciate you sharing that. Well, if you're honest, I, I saw a lot of speakers and what they thought their job was, was to deliver their message kind of right. off the shelf or, or canned, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I just never understood that math because unless you had some topic or wisdom or subject that was truly universal, um, I don't know how it could be more than generic, right? So, so right. my deal was, I don't want to talk about this book that I wrote in a generic way. I want to talk about the mindset of innovation specifically for that company that manufactures that widget or for that company that works with this problem or for this specific set of employees. And the only way I can address what they need is to honestly ask them what they need. Right. <laughs> and, and make sure that I know what they need, right? And so I, I just never thought I could actually give a keynote speech without first knowing what they need. Yeah, that's great. Now, are you, do you still get on stage with, uh, for productions, like as part of the ensemble for shows? Um, w once in a while I'll improvise, you know, we're yeah. kind of unique in the, in the sense that our, our main stage shows are scripted, right? And then we improvise yep. for our third set as a way to continue to build new tier, new material. Um, a couple things, uh, one, my schedule, um, you know, I, I still do about 110 keynotes across the globe each year. So that means every yeah. you know, third, three days. So I'm not in town much. Uh, the second thing is to be honest, like I'm 54 and I never thought I would say this, but I still consider myself funny, but the content, like yeah. I'll sit in one of our shows and, and there's 200 people laughing their butts off and I have no idea about what they just talked <laughs> right. about. Right. Like I remember when dating apps came up. Right. And yeah. so there was something like if you swipe right, that means yeah. that you're saying yes to someone for a day. I, I still don't even know the technology. Right. <laughs> But I'm watching this show three years ago and everyone's talking about swiping right. And I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, you know, I haven't used a dating app in a long, long time here. <laughs> what the hell swipe right? And yeah. So, so I have to be honest that I think comedy, especially topical comedy is right. not necessarily a young person's game, but a, a, a person who really stays aware of all the social trends. And Jenny and I have, have two sons. William is 17 and Michael is 14. And, and we really have uh, spent almost all of our free time just as a family and, and spending time with those boys because uh, all of my older brothers and sisters told me they're going to be gone before you even get to right. know them. So, yeah. so I have been a bit of a, a hermit, right? I give speeches yeah. and I try to be a good husband and dad. And so I don't know what the kids are laughing yeah. at these days, to tell you the <laughs> truth. Yeah, and uh, that's right. The scripted program is just, uh, it was my, my wife, uh, so we met in Minneapolis. Our, our second date was a uh, production of Flanagan's Wake. Mm. Uh, so we uh, still remember, so uh, also uh, Improv and Brave New Workshop hold a kind of a, a romantic uh, part of my heart as well. Um, yeah, it seems to be a good place for people to go on dates because, especially in the main stage show, because, yeah. you know, back to the promiscuous hostility, positive neutrality, right? We, we need to pick on both sides of the aisle. We need to be as equitable as we possibly can. So it's a great place to see 
does that person have a sense of humor? <laughs> can they um, can they be okay with that? We look at things differently, and that's you know not offensive. Yeah. Um, and how irreverent are they, and all, all that sort of stuff. So it seems to be a nice little petri dish of people that like they either get married or or they're done. Like they, they never have a second date. <laughs> it's an effective sort system, right? Yeah, that's quickly. right. We, we're vetting people one yeah. joke at a time. Uh, so. Also, one of the things you had mentioned earlier that I just found fascinating when you started talking about your corp, kind of like corporate training, uh, could you imagine when you bought the the company that that was where most of your your kind of economic engine was going to sit? Was actually doing corporate training? No, it certainly it it, um, it wasn't in the plan, right? Like we bought the the nation's oldest comedy theater to continue to run the nation's oldest comedy theater. Um, I do have to say, uh, you know. You never really know on stage, you never know why you have this strong instinctual gut to start the next scene or to say the next line. And and I believe that one thing that improvisation does is it, it allows us to connect to um, our instincts and our, our in, emotional intelligence because we're practicing it all the time, right? If you're working in a world that doesn't have any real content to guide you, you have to find another portal to find information on how to make the next decision. So I think improvisation allows us to make decisions, um, more decisions using emotional intelligence than, than if we didn't do that. So I have to say in the last nine weeks, I've been very, 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 very grateful that we decided to also include corporate training. Because you can imagine on, on March 14th, we shut the theater right. down and, and had to lay off all the employees of the theater. And, and uh, we started doing a, a Saturday virtual show, which was, was nice to keep the tradition going of still making comedy. But um, I don't know when live theater will will be back in the picture. And and you know, you think of Dudley Riggs in 1958 in a small little storefront theater. Um, you know, if you ever would have told them 62 years later there's going to be a pandemic and people aren't going to have to wear masks and not not be able to come to your theater, uh, it's an interesting thing. But what's nice is the behavioral tenets of improvisation allowed us to create the corporate stuff. And and now are allowing us to to pivot like we would an improv scene, right? Yeah. So so there there is no live show at the Brave New Workshop this weekend. But that also means that people don't have to drive to Minneapolis to see that show. So that means for our whole lives we'd want to be more international in our audience. Well, we right. have that. Um, we never had enough money to have cameras, you know, record all the shows. Well, now our shows <laughs> are really easy to record, so we can archive right. them. Um, we we kind of had a, a somewhat traditional audience, right? You know, it was kind of somewhat educated liberal Minnesotans seemed to come to our, our theater. Well, now we can really have a diverse audience. Now we can have promiscuous hostility, positive neutrality across the globe, which, which is what we want. Remember, you know, what Dudley started and what we're trying to continue is, is to do something in our comedy that disturbs you, good or bad, in a way that you'd like to have a conversation about it with someone who has a different point of view. Right. And then the goal of that conversation would be to find a third point of view, which might be the solution. And so now we can really, you know, we can mildly offend many different types of people now. <laughs> um, and we're just kind of getting used to not having that live audience and that sort of stuff. But I'm grateful that we are able to use our improv skills to find the corporate training. And then those same skills are going to find this next uh, iteration or, or reinvent reinvention of what our main stage looks like 
Thank you. One, one of the things I really appreciate uh, that you're doing on LinkedIn is you're sharing almost way, ways to be generous, ways to check in with people and giving, giving tips. Uh, can you just tell me where, that, where that's coming from? Uh, I, I enjoy what they are. So uh, just kind of what was the motivation there? Yeah, um, I have to say it's, it's, it's got a pretty deep origin uh, in, in two ways. One is um, Dudley was into social entrepreneurship and being a uh, serving member of our community before it was even a thing, right? Be, be, yeah. you know, so, so that meant uh, he was baking bread in the small bakery next to the theater and, and giving that out to people who were hungry. He was doing that in 1958. He was um, sharing money from his bar with, with folks who needed to go in to, to rehab. He, he was a true um, societal member of our community. And that came from his background in the circus, right? So remember, he's fifth generation Barnum and Bailey circus performing. And if there's a community that understands that we all need to care for each other, it's the circus. And you've got this kind of safe haven for freaks as he used to call it, (laughs) but you never know who's going to be able to help who. Right. And so he grew up with this sense of, we need to care for each other. And then I'm very grateful that that's, that's what I was taught. And that's what our family was about. Uh, I I was taught that the only true, you know, reason we're all here is to accumulate service for others. And, and, you know, so my mother said things like, we've got more than most, so we need to share. Today's yeah. a better day than yesterday. Um, if we stick together, everything will be okay. And so I have to say, those two influences, and then this improvisational influences, the only way I can improve the scene is to serve my scene partner. So that all uh, came together, and, and, I, and, and I think we've been keeping that tradition alive, and, and we do it in lots of different ways. Um, one of the things that's really hard about this COVID situation is, we, uh, for five and a half years, every third Thursday, made 2,000 sandwiches at the, at the, the theater. And this beautiful right. man by the name of Alan Law would distribute those that night. And, and so we're trying to figure out how to do that virtually. And, and we're gonna, I think we're going to pair with a couple of grocery chains to get that done. Um, we have this silly character that we developed named Jiggly Boy, right? And so Jiggly Boy yeah. uh, now has, I think, half a billion people have seen Jiggly Boy across the world. 250 people in China have seen this silly little video. And if you want to see it, you can go to jigglyboy.com. And the reason I want you to go there is because you can also contribute to Smile Network International there. And so that was a situation where we brought some joy to a, an audience by taking off our shirt and dancing. And I realized that looking at these photographs, that they were all smiling and that Kevin Garnett, the, the NBA player that I was interacting with, had this beautiful smile. And I instantly remembered that that's another thing I take for granted, that everyone can smile. Yeah. And that these, these beautiful children, especially in third world countries who are born with a cleft palate or cleft lip, can't smile. But we can help them. And Smile Network International does that. Um, and so the other thing that kind of is, is in the current day is I've always believed, and I believe improv uh, helps you do this, is that if you have an obstacle in front of you, instead of going inward, and figuring out what you need, just go outward and ask, how can I help someone? And, and it's, it's an odd little irony because yep. I don't know if I like helping people or if I'm just truly the most selfish person in the world because I know that when I help someone, solutions come to me. When I help someone, I feel better. And it's actually the best way for me to break out of my rut. So, so the person who gets the most out of serving people is me. So kind of if you look at it as a circle of selfishness, yeah. <laughs> I'm really just kind of self-serving yeah. in, my, in my serving people. 
so we've always had that that and and so what we're trying to do right now uh even in our corporate business is you know we just asked all of our clients how can we help not how can we help and sell you something we just said how can we help and so we've spent really the last eight weeks volunteering for the best corporations in the world to help them figure out how to keep that mindset because you remember the book we wrote was about how to move from a mindset of fear to a mindset of innovation. And there used to be a lot of people who lived in the mindset of fear, and now everybody is in the mindset of fear. The difference is we used to live in that mindset of fear for silly reasons, like I might be judged or my idea might not be great. And now, we, yeah. now we've got a little pandemic to actually give us a reason to be fearful. So we are, we, my point is we, we kind of plunged back into this mindset of service and you know in our home and in our theater we just ask two questions every morning what can we build who can we help what can we build who can we help and the rest kind of takes care of itself that's that's great thanks so much for for sharing that i love, <laughs> i love the phrase safe haven for freaks that's yes <laughs> that's great uh, one kind of last topic before we go is that uh you know one of the things that i find is a unique form of collaboration is actually the notion of mentorship and mentors and, and advice and kind of blending those. And, I, and I'm taking this from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist. He says, when you give advice, you're actually talking to your younger self. It's like things that you wish you would have known. But if you don't mind sharing with me either some great advice that still guides you today from a mentor or advice you wish you would have had uh, earlier in your career. Yeah, I, I think um, I've had so many great mentors, you know, Dudley being one of them. Um, I it's interesting. I, I work with people to have an open mind. And yet, if I look back at my younger self, I actually allowed my passions to make me more rigid than, than I could have been. And what I mean by that is, I just love that theater so much. And I love what we do for our community, that I don't think I was flexible enough in how else could we do it? Or do we, do we always have to do it that way? Because we've always had to do it that way. And I look at it now and it's a bit embarrassing because I'm spending my life working with corporations saying, you should never ever say, well, the reason we do this is because we always done. But theater has got a lot of traditions, right? And, and it's so emotional. And um, I think I could have done a better job, you know, saying, let's re-examine how we do things maybe every year, maybe every six months. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, I love when people follow their passions. I think my passion was so strong, it blinded me a bit into what else or, or why or, or that sort of stuff. So I, um, I would have shook myself and said, you know, what else could you do? And you don't have to always do it the same way. And then um, I think the other thing is uh, I, I, would have, I would have figured out how to engage uh, more of an advisory type community. Um, I think because there's not a lot of, uh, 60 year old comedy theaters that do corporate training for me to bounce stuff off. You know, there's kind of yeah. us in yeah. second city and a couple others and that sort of thing. Um, I would have, I would have, uh, had more humility in my younger self. Um, I figured no one else could know how to run the brave new workshop because I'm the only one who owns it, you know, Jenny and I, and, and now I have a, a casual board of advisors from lots of different industries and lots of different points of view. And so, um, especially if anyone's listening who's an entrepreneur, you know, we don't have the luxury of having these um, disciplined networks that you do if you're, you know, Cargill or General Mills or all this sort of stuff. So I would much more aggressively go seek out 
a network of human beings to bounce stuff of off and for for them to tell me that I'm full of it or, or that I'm completely yeah. off base. I would do that more. Right on. Thank you. I uh, really appreciate you being here. Uh, before we go, was there anything that we didn't, didn't cover or a question that I didn't ask that you think we should make sure gets discussed? Well, I, I always like to kind of end with, um, you know, this, this kind of what we do is we help people unlearn a lot of things. And, and what I mean by that is, is if you take any five-year-old in the world and you, you give them a couple other five-year-olds, they will start to play and they will start to create and they will start to innovate. And so what I always like to remind people is, is I really believe in my heart after doing this for 20 years, that all of us were born innovatively and creatively perfect. And that socialization, education, parenting, whatever it is, makes us stray away from that most perfect creative self in different degrees. But I want everyone to just take a deep breath and remind themselves that, that they're 60 seconds away from a mindset of innovation and a mindset of creativity and they have everything they need and they are beautifully and perfectly creative. They just need to unlearn some of the, the non-truths that they've been told. That's awesome. John, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Iowa Idea podcast. I really, really appreciate you sharing your gifts and your insights with us and just uh, wish you and the whole Brave New Workshop team the best of luck going forward. Yeah, I don't know what we'll do, but I know that we'll do something. So we'll keep moving forward. And I'm grateful to, to uh, be uh, on your podcast. And, and uh, I, I'm glad that you're, you're spreading this good news because we all need to work together to find innovative solutions. So uh, as I always end, um, I just hope everyone can take a deep breath and make sure to be sure to laugh today. You got to laugh no matter what. There we go. There we go. All right. right on. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye.